Greetings and salutations in the name of our Lord. I hope you're having a fabuloso day. It's Mr. G. I'm Paige. Here's my coffee. And we're going to get into the Bible a little bit. Let's see. Let me get my backdrop positioned correctly. There you go. That way you can't see the messy room behind me. Ah. Hello, Henry. Um, talk to your mom. We'll be seeing you next week. Not today. Um, all right. Let us get started with this. Today, we're going to finish up 2 Thessalonians today. And uh, Monday, we will be uh, going to Acts chapter 19. And then following Acts chapter 19, let's see here. Let me just pull this page up here. Here we go. We are finishing up 2 Thessalonians right there. And then uh, on Monday, Paul is going to go from Cor Corinth. He's finished with Corinthians. And he's going to go to Ephesus in Acts 19. Now, while he is in Ephesus, he's going to write the letters to the Corinthians and the Galatians. So, that means we are going to have about 22 weeks uh, of Bible uh, devotionals outside the book of Acts. So, 22 weeks, that's like, goodness gracious, that's like five months. Let's see, it'll be starting March, April, May, June, possibly July before we get to Acts chapter 20. So this is kind of cool. I'm really liking this approach to the book of Acts. All right, so today we finish up 2 Thessalonians. We're going to do chapter 3. Now, what has happened so far in chapters 1 and 2? Well, Paul's, Paul started off with uh, instructions to them about uh, what we call eschatology, the end times, in First Thessalonians. Now, I don't know if they were confused by what Paul had said or if other people were taking advantage and confused them in order to hurt Paul's uh, credibility with them. I think probably it was six of one and half a dozen of the other, but they were a little confused when it came to uh, the second coming of the Lord. Uh, and so Paul is really setting the record straight. He's talking, he talked to them in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians about the day of the Lord, specifically. And in the 2 Thessalonians, he spends a great deal of time talking about the man of lawlessness, the one uh, who really is going to usher in the last day. The man of lawlessness has to be revealed first before the last days that he's talking about, and the second coming of the Lord takes place. So the first Thessalonians, he's talking about the last day, and then he kind of he kind of zeroes in on, drills down to talking about the man of lawlessness and how that is a precursor to the second coming of the Lord. Um, so he spent a lot of great time doing that. And now today in chapter 3, he backs off from that subject and he gives him really, he closes the letter down, and he gives some really specific instruction to the body. Some real life rubber meets the road. Uh, I am Paul, your apostle type instruction. And uh, he gets a little firm. So let's just read it and chat about it and see what we got. Here we go. All right. Chapter 3, Request for Prayer. As for other matters... 
brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. All right, Paul's in Corinth. Now, when we get around to reading the letter to the Corinthians, you're going to see Paul saying, do you remember when I came to you? I came to you with fear and trembling. Uh, something had happened in Athens that really knocked Paul back a bit. Um, you know that Paul was a Pharisee. And when you read the Pharise- about the Pharisees in the Gospels, they're a pretty confident lot. They're very confident in their knowledge of the Scripture. They're very confident in their application of the Scripture. They're very confident and uh, strong individuals. And so that would be Paul. He's confident. And you can see that in his letters. He's confident. He's strong. He's, he's, he's a genius. I think he's probably one of the best minds that the church has ever produced. But he tells the Corinthians, I came to you in fear and trembling. So something had happened in Athens. And probably something had happened just prior to Athens. What happened prior to Athens? Getting chased out of Thessalonica. The persecution uh, it, it apparently was so bad that they got him out of Thessalonica and he left Thessalonica so that he wouldn't be a lightning rod for more persecution for those new believers. So I think it was a combination of things. As he's writing this letter, he's in Corinth, he's remembering back to his persecution, and he's human. Paul is not a superman. He's, he's a man. Called by God, yes, to do amazing things, yes. But that doesn't mean he's immune from being afraid or being scared. So when you look at this, I and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, just like the wicked and evil people that are coming, that are still there in Thessalonica. Um, but, oh, he says, for not everyone has faith. So I, I think that is the context of that statement. Uh, but the Lord is faithful. And he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. And I think he's drawing from personal experience here. Paul needed strengthening. Paul needed protection from the evil one because the evil one is pursuing Paul with great vigor. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. All right, good stuff. Now, gets into Paul gets into some teaching here. Uh, there was a old man that I used to know. Don't know where he's at now. Uh, he might have gone home, to be, gone home to be with the Lord. But he was, he was a very common sense, country kind of guy. And he loved this one preacher. But when the preacher started getting very specific in his instructions as to what a Christian should be or do, this guy would mutter under his breath, all right, preacher, you've gone from preaching to meddling. Anytime the preacher got to something that this guy was supposed to do, he said, you've gone from preaching to meddling. Well, guess what? Paul has gone from preaching to meddling. Verse 6, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, first of all, when 
Paul drops that in as the opening phrase of a sentence. You better pay attention because all the authority that Paul can think of is being brought to bear here. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, Paul, Timothy, Silas, we command you, brothers and sisters. I don't think there's a stronger sentence out there. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teachings you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help. They kind of did. But in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that among you, there are some who are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down, earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. All right, a couple things here come to mind. Uh, in that society, uh, there was a patron system. Now, in the music world, later on, uh, say like from medieval through the Renaissance era, a rich patron, a duke, duchess, king, queen, they would support a court musician. They would pay their bills, they'd pay them a salary, give them a place to live, uh, so that the the composer did not have to worry about making a living while he was composing music. So they basically would support him with a salary and a place to live, and he would write music for their uh, events, but he was also free to write whatever else he wanted to do. Just know that they, the duke or the duchess or the king or the queen, that they would be his first priority when they needed music for something. So, and they, that was called a patron. Many of the most popular musicians we, ha we, we hear about today are were patrons and because, or worked with patrons, excuse me, and because these patrons supported them, they had the time to devote to make the great music that w much of what we hear today. So there's a patron system out there. Now, I'm not sure how that would uh, translate into the Greek, Greco-Roman society, except perhaps I know that there were speakers, orators that would travel around and maybe they're, maybe they are, uh, they would have patrons that would support them so that they could speak and teach. But apparently there were some other folks who didn't work but still managed to get someone to support them. Part of it might be the wealthy among that congregation um, were generous. And maybe these people found a way to milk that opportunity. 
and not work and be idle and yet still receive charity from the wealthier ones among them. Maybe that was it. But anyway, Paul addresses this. Now, I, I've i been doing, uh, working with um, Bible Gateway online. Oh my gosh. You know, if, if you were to look at my bookshelf, you'd see a bookshelf, you'd see a couple shelves full of Bible study helps. There's inter- Greek and Hebrew interli- interlinear Bibles. There's uh, Strong's Concordance. There's uh, word study, uh, commentaries, all this stuff, all these books. Well, Bible Gateway has brought all this stuff together. And when you buy their premium thing, which doesn't cost a whole lot, you get access to a ton of references. And this little part from one of their commentaries was really knowledgeable and it really opened my eyes a little bit to this. So let me just read this to you. The first of three trouble groups in the Thessalonian congregation with whom Paul deals is those who are idle. The Greek word used for that word, idle, used by the apostle four times in his two letters to describe the first group has two possible meanings. One is derived from its use in military context to depict soldiers who would not keep step or follow commands. That is those who were obstinate or rebellious. The other use of that word stems from its use in the papyri of the papyri of the Hellenistic period to describe students or workers who failed to do their work. That is, those who were idle or lazy. Now, the first meaning, rebellious, nicely captures the resistance of this group to their leaders. In other words, they resisted Paul. Whereas the second meaning is supported by Paul's explicit commands to work. That's found in both of these letters. It is best, therefore, to identify the first group here as rebellious idlers. Members in the church who were not merely lazy, but who obstinately refused to submit to the authority of their leaders and of the apostle. Although Paul's maxim here has no exact parallel, similar sayings can be found in Jewish and early Christian literature. Rabbi Abihu, for example, decided as stating, if I do not work, I do not eat. The Greek text makes clear that Paul is not speaking about the inability to work, but rather the refusal to work. The text literally reads, if someone does not want to work. While the church must continue to care for those who genuinely need help, it must not tolerate those who are unwilling to work. An early Christian manual of instruction makes the same point in his teaching on how to deal with visitors who come in the name of the Lord. If the one who comes is merely passing through, assist him as much as you can. But he must not stay with you for more than two or necessary three days. However, if he wishes to settle among you and be a cra- and is a craftsman, let him work for his living. If he is not a craftsman, decide according to your own judgment how he shall live among you as a Christian, yet without being idle. But if he does not wish to cooperate in this way, then he is trading on Christ. Beware such people. So, apparently, there were troublemakers who refused to work and managed to find a way to get their hooks into some wealthy folks that supported that. Ah, Paul goes on to say, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet, do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Okay, well, he's 
recommending a form of uh, ostracism here. Um, excommunication, perhaps. So don't associate with them in order they may f that they may feel ashamed. It kind of gives a sense of he's telling the church, don't allow them to participate in church functions. Uh, don't allow them to participate in communion, perhaps, or the meal that follows communion. Um, because, you know, it, they're not emulating Christ. Those who eat must work. So he's, now this might be a pretty fairly effective way of dealing with folks like this because this was, their, shame was part of this culture. I mean, it was very class-oriented. Um, it was very much uh, um, rich people, poor people thing, uh, separation. And perhaps this would reach out to them. You stop and think about it. When somebody is, is taking money to live, the lifestyle that they are portraying is not really their lifestyle. Think about this. If I found somebody who would give me $3,000 a month, I can live on $3,000 a month. I could have some pretty decent clothes. I could pay my bills. I could pay my rent. Um, but that isn't my money, it's coming from someone else. If that money were gone, I couldn't live like this. I wouldn't look like this. I would be poor. So these people that are taking advantage of patrons are putting on a front of being prosperous, of being, of being well off, and they're not really. They're lying. Now, if they have a patron because they're doing something, well, that's different. You know, some, like I said, in the music world, a patron would support a musician. And the deal would be, since I'm your patron, I am your first priority. I need music written for these events. Supply that music, and then you can do whatever you want with the rest of your time. Now that's, but see, that musician's working. But in this day, in this time, these people were taking, found some way to take advantage and just get free money. And they refused to work. Not that they couldn't. They refused to work. So Paul's telling them, look, take note of these kind of people. Don't associate with them. Shut them off. Shut them down. Yet, do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Again, this is a Christian approach. I'm sorry, you, you, they, they would not allow them to come to these uh, communion dinners, suppers, but they would still love them. It's, it's a delicate it's a delicate line to walk. I get that. But sometimes discipline is absolutely necessary. You, they can't have their way of living off the largesse of the of the rich unless they're working for it. Final greetings. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I like this. May the Lord of peace give you peace. I've highlighted it here. And I got two pictures I got.
Can you believe that? Yeah, I've got two master's degrees. I have two pictures being shown here. For those of you who are just listening and not being able to watch, the picture on the left is a picture of a dove uh, flying peacefully through a forest lane. There's a sunshine, there's beautiful trees, and there's greenery, and it's just like a spring morning. And uh, a picture of peace. But next to it is another picture. And this picture is of a bird who has a nest. He's built a nest. He's built his nest, her nest, on a tiny little cave, a little shelf, if you will, that is surrounded by a roaring waterfall. This, the water, you can just pick, you look at this, you can see the water smashing and roaring, and this bird is just sitting in this nest in the middle of all this cacophony that's going around it. Which of these pictures depicts the peace that Paul wants his people in Thessalonica to have? The one on the left, the peaceful forest scene with the dove floating through on a forest morning, a glorious, gorgeous morning, or the bird that is surrounded by noise and cacophony and roaring, and yet it's just sitting, resting in the middle of that. The picture to the right, the bird with its nest in the midst of the waterfall, that's a picture of the kind of peace that God is calling us to. Because to be truthful, that waterfall represents the world that's around us. It's loud. It's dangerous. It roars. It surrounds us with its noise. And yet, for a Christian, we have the ability in the midst of all that noise and cacophony and danger, and danger, we have the ability to rest and be at peace. That's the peace that Paul is wishing upon his uh, congregants in, in, in the Thessalonian church. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all of you. Now, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. This is cool. I didn't realize this. Paul normally dictated his letters. Okay, I knew that. But toward the end of some of them, he added a brief word in his own handwriting. And there's a couple... Uh, couple scripture references. Here he tells us that this practice was his distinguishing mark. It was common in the ancient world to have the help of a secretary in the writing of a letter. These letters typically end with an autograph, some final remarks written by the sender in his or her own hand. Since the change of script would have been obvious to the reader of the letter, there was no reason to state explicitly that the author was now writing rather than the secretary. In other words, if I'm reading a letter, I'll read it. And it says, I, Paul, wrote this. He wouldn't have to say that if all the letter was being done was being read. Did I just... Sometimes my use of the English language confuses me. If all you're doing is reading the letter, when you see the handwriting change, you know, oh, the author's 
This is proof that the author wrote this letter. Here he is, he's writing this last paragraph in his own hand. But if the letter is to be read, then you might have, it might be necessary to say, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark of all my letters. Um, since it's, since the change of script would have been obvious to the reader, there was no reason to state that the author was writing. Yet a few such statements can be found, and Paul does it here. Paul also closes five of his letters with the phrase, in my own hand, thereby indicating that he is now taking over from the secretary to write personally to his readers. Since the apostle knew that his letters would be read in a public gathering, where it would not be possible to observe the obvious change in handwriting, style, he needed to state explicitly that the closing material was written in his own hand. Now, this next statement here in this commentary makes sense to me. I loved it. The function of the autograph here in 2 Thessalonians is not to emphasize the authenticity of the letter, as many scholars assert, but its authority, especially for those idlers whom Paul anticipates will not obey the exhortations this letter contains. The function of the autograph was to state his authority, remind them of his authority, assert his authority, especially to those idlers. He's telling them, I see you, I know who you are. And he's giving very firm directions in this last chapter about how to deal with them. And so when him saying, I wrote this with my own hand, He's letting the idlers know that he's putting them on notice. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. One last thing about grace. The definition of grace that I've always adhered to was grace is uh, unmerited favor, not deserved. We are saved through grace. That means really very simply that there is no value in and of myself that makes me worthy of what God extended to me. Unmerited favor. In fact, every breath I take is proof of God's grace to me. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need me to be alive. He doesn't need me at all. There's nothing I bring to the table that God needs. And yet, he extends grace. I get to breathe. I get to live. I get to wake up. Everything in our lives as believers is from the pure grace of God. God does not require my presence. He doesn't require that I be saved. He doesn't require that, uh, he doesn't require anything from me. He doesn't need anything from me. Yet he extends his grace towards me. And so that's Paul's parting words. The unmerited, undeserved favor of God be with you all. Wow. Amazing stuff. This was a great little sidestep in Acts to First and Second Thessalonians. I enjoyed it greatly. And I picked up an awful lot from it. Tomorrow, on Wrap Up Saturday, 
we will uh, just cover what we've talked about in Second Thessalonians this week, and we'll probably cover some more First Thessalonians. There's some important lessons, some important takeaways, but I'll save that for tomorrow. Until then, this is Paige. Here's my coffee, and I am out of here.